Well, Happy New Year, Trinity Park. It's good to see all of you. And as we get the new year going, I thought instead of uh, just going straight back into Revelation, which will start next week, I thought we'd take one week to talk about who we are as a church and where we're going to be going this year in 2024. Um, you know, there's a lot of new people at our church. Angus is new. Uh, Jim has been preaching some. The Cunninghams are new. In the last year, uh, we have a, a lot of new people. And maybe you visited actually over Christmas and you decided to come back. If that's the case, that's awesome. So for you, I just wanted to take a, a sermon to describe who we are as a church and where we're going. Uh, also, as we have Angus coming in and, and others I just want to let you know, it hit me last week that we have about 17 new people leading in various capacities in the last five months. So we have three new elders, four new deacons, eight women on the women's ministry team. Alicia is leading children's ministry. Angus is leading in youth ministry. And there are others who are leading in various capacities. And so a question might be in your mind with all these new people and all this new leadership, what kind of a church are we going to be? in 2024. Well, I just want to affirm for you uh, that we're going to be heading in the same direction that we've been going in all along, and that is according to our vision statement that we're going to be a church that proclaims Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. We're going to be a church that proclaims Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. And so this is the vision that God has given us as a church, and we're going to continue to move in that direction with new people and with new leadership. I'm so grateful uh, for your generosity also at the end of the year. Um, officially, the number is 142,000 that's been given as of 1231, but I believe that number, according to conversations with the treasurer, will actually be higher than that. Um, so the Lord really inspired you all to generosity uh, because of your love for him, and that is a beautiful thing. And so... We will ask the question, what are we going to do with that money? How are we going to invest it for the kingdom? We're going to invest it by proclaiming Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. But as I think about our vision statement, which we'll talk about a little bit today, uh, I chose this text in particular from Romans 15 because we have a vision statement. I believe it is good and biblical, and I'll show you even why according to this passage but it begs the question, how are we going to pursue that vision? With what attitude, with what approach will we pursue this vision that the Lord has given our church? And we're going to pursue that vision by following the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to continue to be a church that pursues a vision that, that has great dreams and ideas, but not because we're great at all, but because we have a great Savior. We're going to be inspired to new things by pursuing a path of downward mobility, which we find Jesus taking in this passage. One of my favorite thoughts or illustrations about what the Christian life is all about um, is the illustration of a baseball glove. I grew up loving baseball. Uh, I grew up, I mean, shortstop, fielding ground balls. I, I probably did that for two or three hours a day for certain periods of my life. Absolutely loved it. Uh, the Probably the most expensive present my parents got me before I was in high school when things got a little more expensive uh, was a baseball glove. It was a Rawlings gold glove. Back in the late 80s, that glove still cost about $250. It was a really nice glove. 
But the frustrating thing about getting a new baseball glove is that when you first get a glove, you're all excited about it, but the glove is completely and totally useless. It's hard, it's, it's, uh, it's not, not pliable to your hand, so you go out and play catch with your dad or with a friend, the ball just pops right out. It, it cannot be useful to you until the glove is broken in. The glove becomes more useful as it becomes weaker and as it becomes shaped to the hand of the one that needs to use it. And you see where I'm going. In the Christian life, the more useful we become, the weaker we are. The more useful we are to the Lord, the weaker we are. The more conformed to Christ we become. The more Christ-shaped we become, and the more dexterity that is in the church, the more weak and the more lenient on Christ that we are, we're actually more useful, more flexible. God can use us in various ways in the Redeemer's hand for his glory. And so if we're going to pursue this vision as a church of proclaiming Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations, we have to become weaker. We have to become weaker and more broken in and more dependent on Christ in order for us to become the kind of church that God is calling us to be. And so in Romans 15, Paul encapsulates his vision for what the Christian life is all about. He's written this treatise that is an amazing book. If you haven't read it, you should read Romans. It's held by most to be the the highest theological work of Paul. But Paul, in his normal way of going about writing, he uses this indicative imperative scheme where for the first 11 chapters, he shows us what the gospel is all about, who Jesus is. And then in the last five chapters, starting in chapter 12, he goes to the imperative. If this is the gospel, if this is Christ, how Christ lived, because Jesus is the gospel, then this is how we should live in response to him. And so he starts out in that second section in chapter 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you can test what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Paul says the right response to the gospel is moving from the indicative, what is true of Jesus, to the imperative, how we should live if we believe this gospel of Jesus. And he says it involves sacrifice. It involves being conformed and transformed, not to your own ideas, not to the culture's ideas, but to the ideas of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, who Jesus Christ is. And then in, in chapter 15, he gets to the end of this imperative section, and basically right here, he's tying a bow around everything, and he's basically saying, I just want to boil it down to one thing for you as a Christian What you're called to do is follow the example of Jesus Christ. That is it. You are called to follow the one that you say that you follow. That is the call of the Christian life and and the, and the base of it. And Christ is the ultimate example of someone who is willing to undergo the greatest weakness 
and the greatest transformation, and the greatest amount of being broken in to the Father's will to accomplish the mission, the objective that God had, that God the Father had for him. And we are simply called to do the same. So today my three points will correspond to our vision statement, uh, proclaiming Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. But what we're going to find is I'm going to talk a lot less about our vision statement, a lot more about Jesus, because only by conforming to him will we ever be a church that lives up to what we say our vision is. So the first point this morning is who or what is at our center as a church What is at our center as a church, and that is we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. This is what we believe. This gets at what we believe to be true. We believe Jesus to be true. And then Paul, in the the beginning section there in chapter 15 of Romans, he explains to us again who Jesus is. And there's five aspects of the gospel that Paul paints for us the gospel of Jesus, as we look at Jesus' downward mobility. What I mean by that is that Jesus starts in the highest place and he goes to the lowest place. So the movement in the Christian life is from high to low. It's from high to low. Description one of Jesus' downward mobility is is in verse three. It says, for Christ did not please himself. He did not please himself. He gave up his own self-interest. He laid aside his own self-interest, his own glory, and he lived for the will of his father, the will of someone else, his father. And then in living for his father, what did his father require him to do? The second description of Jesus' downward mobility is that he laid aside his glory and he took on humility. He took on humility. Verse 3 goes on to say, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on to me. So what this word reproach means is is a loss of reputation to the degree that you are actually cursed because of your identification with someone else. So Jesus is so identified with the Father's will that he takes on cursing so that he would be true to the Father And so those who rejected God the Father also rejected Christ the Son. One way we might describe this today would be losing our reputation. Or another word we might use more often would be maybe swag. Like losing all your swag. Anything that makes you look good, Jesus left it all behind and he took on rejection instead. That's the second way Jesus embraced downward mobility. He took on humility. The third description of Jesus' downward mobility is found in verse 7. It says, in this downward mobility that Christ has welcomed you. Why did Jesus move from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows? We just celebrated Christmas, the incarnation. Why? The why of the incarnation. It is to welcome you and me, sinners, into the kingdom of God. Of God. He laid aside his reputation and was even cursed to welcome us to himself. This is the third description of his downward mobility. The fourth description of his downward mobility is found in verse 8, where it says, Christ became a servant. He became a servant. 
Actually, he became the ultimate servant. And this section gets into the fact that the church that Paul is writing to in Rome is a multicultural church, something like our church here at Trinity Park. And this church was filled with converted Jews and converted Gentiles, brought together in one body because they believe in the same Christ. And the wall of hostility has been broken down and they find themselves together. And so Paul says in order for that to have happened, a multicultural church, what we needed was a savior who was a servant. First of all, he was a servant to Israel. Jesus came and in this section here, verse seven and eight or so, Jesus basically becomes the perfect son, the the son that God always wanted in Israel, a son who would be obedient. And Jesus lived up to all of the standards of Jewish ceremonial, civil, and moral law. Jesus didn't just become a servant in general, he actually became a servant and lived up to all of those Old Testament commands, which we don't have to do, thank God, because of Christ. But you think about that, that Jesus didn't just take on humility, just didn't just become a servant. He became, first of all, a servant of Israel, living underneath all of that law and doing it flawlessly so that he might become our savior, might become the Messiah, might become the savior of all people, but the Jews in particular. And then it says, it goes on, that, that Jesus did that. He became a servant also. Why? And there's all those quotes about the Gentiles, all those quotes about bringing the Gentiles into the church. And what that shows is that the church in Rome, this multicultural church full of converted Jews and converted Gentiles, and a church like Trinity Park, where we have probably 25 or 30 different ethnic backgrounds represented in our church, what that represents is that we, we represent God's vision, what God wanted to see occur, God the Father through Christ the Son. Jesus died to bring a church together, a multicultural people to himself. And Paul quotes from all over the Old Testament to prove this has always been God's heart. That God's heart has always not just been for the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, but also for the whole world. So Christ became our servant He served us. That's beyond incredible that the second person of the Trinity would lay aside his heavenly glory. He would disrobe himself of all of his heavenly majesty and he would become a man and he would undergo all the miseries of this life. Every single law he fulfilled in the Jewish nation and he would do it all the way to utter obedience to death on a cross, and he did this to be a servant so that we would be a part of the church. And description five shows us the downward mobility of Christ. There's five descriptions I see here of Jesus' downward mobility, and it's found there where it says that he opens up the windows of God's mercy in verse nine in order for the Gentiles that they might glorify God for his mercy. Mercy is getting something that you don't deserve. We get salvation from Christ because of his downward mobility. And so this is what we believe to be true about Christ, that Jesus is this this servant who takes on total downward mobility. This is the Christ we proclaim. He did not please himself. He took on humility. He welcomes us into his kingdom. He became the ultimate servant, and he brings mercy to the world. 
We have to see that the gospel of grace is only ours because of the downward mobility of Jesus Christ. If Christ doesn't go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, we have no gospel. This is the gospel that we proclaim. And this is why pride and arrogance in the church is so detestable and dysfunctional. When we find arrogance and pride in our own hearts or in the church, it's, it's something we should immediately repent of because it's completely inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, we find this in the church a lot, even in our church, for sure, sometimes, and it's something that we need to grapple with and we need to let go of and repent of because the gospel comes to us through utter humility. I've been reading uh, the unabridged version of Les Mis recently, which is a very long book, but uh, I started a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't realize until I read the unabridged version that Victor Hugo, in setting up the moment, if you're familiar with the story of Les Mis, where Jean Valjean receives mercy from the priest, that in the unabridged version that Victor Hugo spends about 75 pages building the backstory of the priest, How did the priest become the man that would forgive Jean Valjean? In one of the moments in developing the the personality and the uh, understanding of the gospel of the priest, Victor Hugo puts him at the guillotine where the priest has to go care for a man who is guilty of the death penalty. And he has to go and and read him and and minister to him in his last moments and his last rites as a Catholic priest. And here's the quote from the priest when he is at the guillotine. He says, one may feel a certain indifference to the death penalty. One may refrain from pronouncing upon it, from saying yes or no, so long as one has not seen a guillotine with his own eyes. But if one encounters one of them, the shock is violent and one is forced to decide and to take part for or against. The guillotine is a vision. I believe Hugo was saying that, not just about the guillotine, but about the cross. I believe he was saying that when you encounter the cross, when you encounter a savior who died for you, you can have all of the theories about Jesus and the gospel, what you agree with or you don't agree with about the cross, but the cross is a vision. And at the cross where we find Jesus dying for us, taking this path of utter downward mobility, you are forced to decide. It cuts through all of your opinions about what Jesus should have said or didn't say and how Christians are or they're not. And at the cross, you're forced to decide, do I believe in this man, that he is the Savior, my Savior, or do I not believe in him? Because he took on the death penalty for us. And so the cross is a vision. And if it is our church's vision and it's your vision, then you have to believe the gospel, first of all. Believe that it's true. That through the cross that you're saved of your own sin by God's great mercy. But after we believe, we find that suddenly something else has happened is that we now belong to Christ. We now belong to him. It's not mere intellectual belief or assent or even in the heart But it's something that we now belong to him. We're united to him, and we're also united to his church. Uh, There's a book I read just after I became a Christian in college. 
There's a book that was, I was not in college in 1950, but the book was written in 1950. It's called The Calvary Road. Uh, it's been published many times by a guy named Roy Hesion. And what I remember from that book is that Hesion says, whenever a person approaches the cross and believes in Jesus for the first time, the big I, the I of self, is bent into a little C, a little Christ. A little Christ is formed. The big I is shaped into a little C. And I remember reading that and just thinking that that's exactly what happens at the cross. The force of the cross bends a person from his own will into the will of another, or at least it starts the process of it. And I believe that's what the rest of this passage is calling us to. What does it look like to have that big eye bent into a little C? What does that shift look like in our relationships in the church? So first of all, uh, we're a church that proclaims Christ. That talks about what we believe. But how do we proclaim Christ? The second point is we do it in redemptive community. In redemptive community that we belong to Christ and we also belong to each other. Before we think about proclaiming the gospel outside the church, which we'll talk about in the last point, we have to talk about what does it look like to proclaim the gospel inside the church? What does it look like to live according to the gospel of downward mobility inside the church? You know, Jesus in John 13, 35 does not say that they will know we are Christians by how passionately we stand against the evils of the world. He does not say that they will know you are Christians by how well you can describe your theology. He does not say that they'll know you're Christians by how zealously or persuasively you proclaim the gospel throughout the world. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, they will know you are Christians by the way that you love each other. That may be a surprising statement for us from Jesus, but I think it's true. It gets at the very heart of the gospel. If we can love each other in the church, then we can do anything. (laughs) If we can love one another in the church well, if we can show one another the love of Jesus then we can be a redemptive community and proclaim the gospel to the world. As that big I has been into a little C, what will it look like for us to live in these new ways? Well, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, which Andy prayed about, because of the example of Christ, those who are strong have an obligation, not a suggestion, but an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Those who are strong have to bear or call to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. When someone fails us in the church, uh, we want to not bear with them and forgive them naturally. We want to take them to task. We naturally want to let them know where they violated our rights as a human being. Um, It's not natural to us, especially if the uh, person that we're called to bear with, who is weak, believes that they are strong. 
So when, you're, when someone is actually weak, but they're, they're, they come across as believing that they're right, but yet you are called to bear with them in their weakness of believing that they have everything right, man, that's really, really hard. It's hard to do that. How do you do that? Well, you only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and being conformed to Christ. Only Christ loved us like that. Where do we get the idea that, we can, that someone who is strong can bear with the failings of the weak? Well, we get it from the gospel. We get it from a God who did exactly that for us. That when we were weak, he had every right. I mean, he was sinless and perfect. He had every right to just walk down the list and point out all of the hundreds of areas where we've fallen short. He could have done that. But he didn't. What did he do? He became nothing. He got underneath us in our weakness and lifted us up. And so we are called to bear with the failings of the weak because of the gospel. And so when someone fails us, we're called to love them and forgive them. We're called to disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. We're called to disadvantage ourselves. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. And that's the only way that love can be shown a lot of times in the church. Jesus disadvantaged himself to advantage us, and now we have the obligation to do the same. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. In our world, we are told to Think about yourself, invest in yourself. If you're not being noticed or praised for the things that you're good at, then you're being violated. But Christianity flips that on its head. And it says that you should be concerned about pleasing your neighbor to build him or her up. When the big I meets the cross and becomes the little C, we learn to divest ourselves of our own power in our own position, so that others can be raised up. Now the story that we're most concerned about in the world is not our story and what people think of us. It's Jesus' story and what people will think of him. And we're actually more concerned about other people and their story. What would it look like if we were a church that when we came to church, we went to community group, or when we served, our main concern was actually, is everyone here being built up? Is everyone here in this church being raised up? Is everyone here able to use their gifts in the body of Christ? Rather than walking into a meeting and thinking, did anybody notice me today? Did anybody praise me today? What would it look like to be able to be others-centered, Christ-centered rather than self-centered in the church? What would it look like for others to garner our attention rather than our own That's what Jesus did for us. It's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. 15, verse 4. If you thought it was challenging already, it gets really challenging here. It says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Well, this is taken, if you look down in in your notes, it comes from Psalm 69, 9 where it goes back to that quote where it says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell onto me. 
you go back to Psalm 69, this is a Psalm of David, where David is basically writing about who is reproaching him. Who is reproaching him? It's not his enemies. He writes about his enemies a lot of times. What he's writing about is being reproached or discouraged or even cursed by his friends, by his own brothers and sisters in the community of faith. And basically, David is pouring his soul out to the Lord and saying, that's what hurts the most. It hurts worse than anything to be misjudged and mistreated by my own brothers and my own sisters. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell unto me. David is saying the hardest thing in the church is when we're not loved as we need to be by our brothers and sisters. So what do we do in that situation? Well, we turn to Christ. Our tendency when we are mistreated by others, especially in the church, is to figure out a way to express how we just don't feel good about that at all, usually verbally, usually by disparaging the person who is disparaging us. Gossip and slander is another way to describe that. When we don't feel like we're seen or worse, when, we are, when things are said to us that really hurt us, our tendency is to hurt back. But in the gospel, what we find is that that's not what Jesus did, did he? I mean, where can we find the example of someone who was mistreated, misjudged, and cursed for it, and did not open his mouth? Where can we find that? You can find it only in Jesus Christ. And listen, even though this is something that we can apply in our lives, no one is like Jesus. Not a single one of us is sinless. There's things, even though people say things about you that may be untrue, that doesn't mean that you're sinless, right? Jesus was actually sinless. He actually could have litigated his way out of anything because he had the righteousness to go with it, but he didn't. He bore with it for the sake of the gospel and did not open his mouth. It's incredible, this gospel that we find in Jesus Christ. And this leads us to verse 7, where humility leads to harmony. If we want to have harmony in the church, you have to have humility in the church. Arrogance and pride and, and um, harmony don't go together. Humility and harmony go together. We can be harmonious. We can be united as we have humility. And then he talks also about welcoming others Welcoming others. Jesus welcomed us, so we should welcome others. Very practically, who are you welcoming in? As you take that posture of humility, whose feet are under your dinner table? Who are you inviting into your space? It could be literally welcoming them in to your home. It could just be welcoming someone into your life. It could be re-welcoming someone, person, someone into your life who has hurt you before. But because of grace, you are forgiving them and you're restoring fellowship and friendship with them. Can you imagine what it might be like for someone outside the church to look into the church and observe a community where everyone is growing in humility? Everyone is going low so they can push others high. Everyone is showing mercy because they know without Christ's mercy, they would have nothing. If they could find a community of diverse people that their one commonality 
and their one source of unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would that demonstrate to the world? It would demonstrate love, the love of the gospel that we're called to in Jesus Christ. And so we're called to proclaim Christ. That's what we believe. We're called to uh, redemptive community. We do that in redemptive community. That's what we belong to. And then finally, we do that among neighbors and nations. Among whom do we proclaim Christ? We do it among neighbors and nations. And this gets into what does it look like to build the body of Christ out from where we are now. First of all, at Trinity Park, this speaks to our own church body. As I mentioned earlier, we are a community of the nations. And so we talk about among neighbors and nations. We chose that wording very carefully because when we talk about neighbors and nations, uh, we don't want to just think about neighbors and nations as a mission field, as being people outside of our church. The neighbors and nations are also who we are as a church. We are the neighbors and nations. As people are called from the nations and, and our neighbors are called into the church, we become one body of neighbors and nations. But this also does speak not just to who we are as a church, but also to our mission outside the church, both locally and globally. And we really get to that in verses 18 through 21. So the, the first thing we see here in verses 18 through 21, we see the methods we use to proclaim the gospel to neighbors and nations. We see that in verse 18. What are the methods that we use? Well, we do it in word and in deed. We, we proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. So certainly we need to use our words. We, we, we're going to have some evangelism training this year. Uh, I think Jim Cunningham is going to help us uh, with some of that. So we're going to learn how to better share our faith, how to give a reason verbally for the hope that we have. But we also want to grow as a congregation in the deeds of the gospel, the way we proclaim the gospel through our deeds. Uh, we're grateful that we have opportunities at Boundary Village and other places to show the tangible love of Christ, to proclaim the gospel indeed. And so the methods we use to proclaim the gospel to neighbors and nations are word and deed. The power we have when proclaiming the gospel to neighbors and nations in verse 19, uh, the first one is signs and wonders. Okay, so what do we do with that? Um, what I do with that is God is doing whatever he wants to do to bring people to himself all over the world all the time. There are tons of examples of God working in ways that we would consider to be not normative or not the, not the typical way that we would find God working but in, in ways that are a bit abnormal or mysterious to us. And I have zero problem with that. In fact, I pray for God to do mysterious work in our hearts and in the world all the time. God can do whatever he wants, and so we pray that God will use whatever means possible to bring people to himself through his own power. But also, uh, the second thing we see there is the Spirit of God. Whether the means that we're seeing at work in people's lives, whether we would consider that to be more extraordinary or more ordinary, it's all from the Holy Spirit. This is all the work of God. And so whether that someone comes to Christ through a dream or a vision, whether someone just has that, you know, there, there's sometimes where you're just like, I feel like I should call that person. I don't even know why. And you do, and you find out they're having like the worst day in their life. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Or someone is sitting in a church service and they plan, I'm going to be at church at 10 o'clock. 
I'm going to listen to a sermon, and then during the sermon or during the worship service, the Holy Spirit works on them. Either way, it's just as supernatural, just as supernatural for the Holy Spirit to work in those ways. And so at Trinity Park, we want to be a church that we see the power of the Holy Spirit at work among us and at work in our ministry to neighbors and nations. Then finally, we find here uh, in verses, the second half of 19, 19b through 21, we see the scope that we're supposed to consider when proclaiming the gospel to neighbors and nations. You see there, Paul says that it started in Jerusalem. So he started in Jerusalem, like where the church was established. What I see in this is where the church is already established, we should be proclaiming the gospel, okay? In places like Trinity Park Church and the Triangle, the gospel is more established here than in other places. In places like perhaps in South Korea, frankly, China has a ton of churches. We should continue to keep proclaiming the gospel in all the places where the gospel has been proclaimed. That's you know, Angus wants us, please go back to Scotland. Scot- the gospel's been, uh, not you, I don't want you to go back to Scotland, but please, he's saying, he wants people to go to Scotland as missionaries because they need the gospel there. Uh, places like Belarus, we have a missionary there that we support. Belarus used to be a place where there was a lot more gospel activity than there is now. So we have to keep proclaiming the gospel in places where it's been proclaimed. Then to Illyricum, okay, what is that? I had to look that up. Illyricum is this where Paul is basically now. It's the farthest point that Paul had gotten with the gospel at that time. So it's on the edges of gospel expansion. Illyricum is the western coast of Greece. So he wanted to get farther. He he wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to get to Spain. But that's as far as he had gotten. So where the gospel is burgeoning out and it's on its edges, we want to be proclaiming the gospel there, where Paul is now. And then where Christ has not yet been named, he says at the final part. We want to see the gospel proclaimed in places where the gospel has not yet reached at present. There are over 3,000 people groups in the world that have no way to ever hear the gospel right now because the Bible has not been translated or even the gospel into their languages. That's why we are wholeheartedly, but uh, we have, we're a bit conflicted about the Jungs moving to Japan because we love them, but we want them to go to Japan because Japan is essentially an unreached people group. The Japanese, less than 1% of the people there know Christ. That's why we have missionaries in Kuala Lumpur. That's why we support missionaries in the Muslim world. We want to see Christ proclaimed where he is not yet named. How will we be a church that proclaims the gospel in redemptive community among neighbors and nations? I just want to go back to that illustration of the baseball glove. The only way that we can be effective in mission, the only way we can be a church that embodies the gospel the only way we can really say that we proclaim Christ is if we are becoming like that broken end baseball glove. Uh, the world tells us that the um, stronger you become, the, more, uh, the, the less you need to change, the more you've arrived, um, the less distance you have to travel. What the gospel tells us is that the more you grow, the more you know Christ, the more broken in you become, the more weak you become, the more moldable you become, the more useful you are in the hand of the master. 
So my prayer for us as a church is that we would embody this vision, but we would do it by great reliance on Jesus Christ. We would do it by letting go of pride, by repenting of pride, and embracing this gospel of downward mobility where Christ went from high to low. I pray that we would do that so that we can serve one another and so we can serve neighbors and nations. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this morning we have an opportunity uh, to take the Lord's Supper, and I pray that as we transition to that now, that you would um, be at work, Holy Spirit, to fasten the gospel deeply into our hearts, that we would be so grateful for this gospel of downward mobility that comes to us through the death penalty being received by Jesus Christ for us. Lord, may we, this morning, may the cross be a vision for us, a place where everything in the Christian life gets sorted out, where the big I becomes a little C and we are bent uh, so that we can follow you. I pray in Jesus' name.